Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the partial release today of findings from the special grand jury in Atlanta's Fulton County that for the past six months has been investigating Donald Trump's efforts to find 11,780 votes to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. Joining us is Adam Klasfeld, the managing editor at Law and Crime, a legal news service based in New York. He recently was a reporter for the Courthouse News Service, where he had been covering the Russia probe and international money laundering, among other legal matters. We'll discuss what was released in terms of an opening and closing summary, plus recommendations to the DA that she should prosecute some of the witnesses subpoenaed for committing perjury, and Adam's article at Law and Crime, Special Grand Jury Recommends Indictments in Trump's 2020 Georgia Election Probe. Then we'll look into how the possible forthcoming indictments from the Atlanta Grand Jury fit into the other cases against Donald Trump, and which is the most likely to issue indictments first. Joining us is David Graham, a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he covers political and global news. He previously reported for Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, and The National. His latest article at The Atlantic is Trump's last-ditch gamble to avoid indictment, and we will discuss his recent article at The Atlantic, a guide to the possible forthcoming indictments of Donald Trump. Then finally, we'll examine the hypocrisy emerging from the Ohio derailment and toxic spill in criticism leveled at Transportation Secretary Buttigieg by Republican Senators Rubio and Vance, to which Buttigieg countered that his agency's ability to regulate the rail system was constrained by pro-business laws passed in 2017 by the Trump administration. Joining us is Nelson Lichtenstein, Distinguished Professor in the Department of History at, at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He is the author of State of the Union, A Century of American Labor, Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy, the Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business, and The Right and Labor in America, Politics, Ideology, and Imagination. His forthcoming book is A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Adam Klasfeld, who is the managing editor at Law and Crime, a legal news service based in New York. He previously was a reporter for Courthouse News Service, where he had been covering the Russia probe and international money laundering, among other legal matters. And he has an article at Law and Crime, Special Grand Jury Recommends Indictments in Trump 2020 Georgia Election Probe. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adam Klasfeld. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Adam. And I guess the big takeaway from this partial release of the recommendations from the grand jury in Fulton County, Atlanta, 
Georgia, they recommended indictments, and to quote the report, a majority of the grand jury believes that perjury may have been committed by one or more witnesses testifying before it. The grand jury recommends that the district attorney seek appropriate indictments for such crimes where the evidence is compelling. So I guess, you know, they didn't put the names in there, obviously, they redacted the names. But my uh, guess would be the two hostile witnesses that, that contested the subpoenas were Rudy Giuliani and Senator Graham, even though, of course, Senator Lindsey Graham said he doesn't have a problem or doesn't think he has a problem. So what's your guess on that? Well, you know, we will see by the indictments or by the full report when it's released. But I will say this. We know that there were 75 witnesses, according to this report. Uh, We know that, as you mentioned, uh, there were some contentious fights over whether some of these witnesses would testify, including Rudy, including Senator Graham, and that the grand jury thought that some of these 75 witnesses were lying under oath and that they recommended that the DA bring indictments. Um, I also want to emphasize, even though that was the only portion of this particular report, uh, the, the released passages point to these perjury recommendations. There, it's pretty clear from the other portions of the report that they aren't only talking about perjury here, that they investigated many different statutes, that they refer to the roster of recommendations that they were going to attach that hasn't been released yet. So we know that uh, in all likelihood, in addition to these recommendations for perjury, they're recommending charging other uh, crimes in relation to the 2020 election and the efforts to overturn the election results in Georgia. And one other very notable thing about this release passage is that they thoroughly rejected Trump's claims of massive voter fraud in Georgia. It was just a resounding rejection by this 26-person panel of that proposition. And this panel has been working since May the 2nd of 2022, all the way through to the end of the year. Absolutely. And they've kept busy in that time. You know, we're talking a little over six months that they've been hearing testimony that uh, 75 different witnesses appearing before them, telling the stories, whether they were election workers, uh, whether they were experts. We know that uh, certain people who have been investigated as targets included Trump's uh, slate of fake electors for that scheme. So they have been investigating everything surrounding the efforts to overturn the election in Georgia from various different vantage points and from the kind of tantalizing look of what's released uh, they approached their charging decisions from a pretty wide range. So the grand jury said you know we're not experts Uh, we're lay people but they were exposed to an awful lot of evidence including digital evidence. I imagine in among that had to be, <laughs> of course, the recording of the infamous phone call of Donald Trump calling Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of, of Georgia, and asking him, or almost demanding that he find, quote, 
11,780 votes. I think everybody's heard that right. It's pretty blatant and pretty brazen. Right. And after that in the phone call, kind of drops a proposition in that, hey, you could face criminal exposure if you don't root out this supposed election fraud, which the grand jury determined, along with everyone else, didn't happen. Uh, you know, so there it wasn't only find this exact number of votes to overturn the election, but find it or else you can face serious consequences. And I think the combination of those two uh, might be one of the things that the grand jury is looking at. You know, the major part of the report, the thing everyone wants to know, did they recommend charging Trump? Uh, will Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis charge Trump? This all remains to be seen, uh, but that they're, they almost certainly listened to that phone call. They almost certainly discussed the phone call. It's worth remembering uh, why Senator Graham was called before the grand jury. Uh, because of his phone call over uh, the election results. So this, they have spent six months poring over the evidence, and what we know today for certain that we didn't know yesterday is that they recommend indictments in some form. So apart from the headline-grabbing section on their recommendation of perjury charges against people that they believe lied to the grand jury. The The other releases were the introduction and the close, or the summary, I guess. So what, what struck you in, in both the introduction and in the closing summary? Um, definitely their sense of sheer scale, where they reprise everything they've done, the number of witnesses that they've heard from over the course of half a year, the kind of resounding terms they use to reject Trump's claims of election fraud in Georgia, the way that they expressed a vote of confidence. Uh, part You mentioned that they went out of their way to say, hey, we're not election lawyers. Well, essentially, we're lay people. But that was in prelude to saying, so if there's another crime that we didn't sniff out, we have full confidence in the district attorney. So we have only a partial look at what is almost certainly a much larger document. But from that tantalizing look, what we see here is they're recommending charges. They express full confidence in the DA to be able to uh, fill out any gaps that their investigation could not uncover over the course of six plus months. And they thoroughly reject the claims of voter fraud that were peddled in the wake of the 2020 election. So you mentioned in your article, uh, Adam Klasfeld, special jury recommends indictments in Trump 2020 Georgia election probe, that Fannie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County, Atlanta, she has hired a private Atlanta lawyer, John Floyd, who's a specialist in RICO cases, and RICO cases are normally brought against mafia bosses. And you also mentioned a Brookings report that looked into it, uh, that recognized that if violations of individual criminal statutes by a single person are bad, an enterprise that repeatedly violates the law is worse and should be subject to additional sanctions. 
So where do you see or where do you think Fannie Willis might see this as a RICO case? We, because we had a kind of RICO specialist um, working with the Manhattan DA who quit in protest and has written a book. And frankly, I saw a number of interviews with him and I wasn't sure what the there there is. So let's talk about RICO and how it might apply to Trump. Well, it's an interesting topic because we know from the fact of this hire, it surely suggests she's looking into it. We know that major think tanks have investigate, investigated this charge and its applicability to the case. Um, it's a way the folks who say this is a way to uh, move the case ahead argue that uh, RICO charges by their very nature are designed to target enterprises. And for a multifaceted scheme that involves uh, alleged threat against the Secretary of State, the uh, fake elector scheme, and it's a multifaceted scheme. There really wasn't just one effort. There were, it was happening in the courts. It was happening with state representatives. Uh, that is the folks who recommend that approach say this is one way to really give jurors the big picture. Now, those who don't favor it say you are needlessly complicating a case by trying to do this theory of everything. Um, it, the, there are legal experts I've spoken to who say that uh, defense attorneys might make point to the same phone call and say this is word salad, uh, not a crime. So if you want to uh, defeat that argument, if you're coming from the prosecution side, it's easier to make it a very discreet, kind of more manageable uh, charge. Um, so we'll see who wins out. We know that Fonnie Willis is looking at it closely. As you mentioned, the DA uh, in Manhattan had looked at it and hired, much like Fonnie Willis did, a RICO specialist who resigned in protest uh, when no charges were brought. Uh, that isn't happening in Fulton County right now. I haven't heard any whisper of anyone resigning in protest. And by all accounts, she's going on the air and strongly indicating that uh, no one will be spared from indictments. She's not shy from using uh, the RICO statute, and we'll see if she ultimately deploys it. Well, based upon the number of witnesses that they had that addressed these efforts to overturn the elections through basically frivolous lawsuits brought by Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and others, and also uh, the fake electors that apparently they looked into as well, that indicates to me that maybe that is a big part of what they're recommending in terms of the, the DA to explore and for indictments because they, they seem to have laid out a roadmap. And as you point out, this wasn't just in Georgia, this was across the country. So that would fit under the RICO statute, wouldn't it? Well, you know, one thing that no one can accuse uh, Fannie Willis of is doing a shallow investigation. This is very wide ranging. And uh, when one thinks of RICO statutes, they don't think small picture, they don't think small fry. So it would definitely be in keeping with the way that she approached the case. But, you know, I, I don't very often make predictions and we'll, we'll see what happens. It's definitely, uh, from the available evidence, it looks like that 
she has the ear of folks who know quite a bit about the Rico statute. She herself has charged the Rico statute uh, during her tenure. And we know that she's not shy to use it or look into it. So just in closing, then, what is the next step now that, uh, I mean, presumably Fannie Willis has gotten uh, the full report probably some time back, and they, the judge has just released the beginning and the summary and the part about recommending perjury charges against some of the witnesses without naming who they are. So what's the next step here? Do we know when there might be some indictments? Well, we know that last month she said that charging decisions were imminent. And then when very recently a reporter asked her about that, she said, I meant imminent in lawyer language, not reporter language. So uh, we know that uh, imminent has a pretty amorphous meaning when it comes to prosecutors and uh, and uh, lawyers generally. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw it uh, sooner rather than later. And as soon as we start seeing indictments, we're going to start seeing more of that grand jury report because the judge basically said, uh, we're doing this immediate release, but that doesn't mean that the rest is under wraps forever. We're just holding it because of the sensitivity of the investigation. And the and remember, the reason that she wanted, that Fonnie Willis wanted this under wraps for now is that she said she had to protect the due process rights of the accused. So, you know, we I think the public and close legal watchers were expecting she's going to charge. She's going to charge relatively soon. And that after she does, we're going to see more about what this grand jury had to say. Well, Adam Klasfeld, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you again for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Adam Klasfeld, who's the managing editor at Law and Crime, a legal news service based in New York. He previously was a reporter for Courthouse News Service, where he's been covering the Russia probe and international money laundering, among other legal matters. And he has an article at Law and Crime, Special Grand Jury Recommends Indictments in Trump 2020 Georgia Election Probe. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into how the possible forthcoming indictments from the Atlanta jury fit into the other cases against Donald Trump and which is the most likely to issue indictments first. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Graham, a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he covers political and global news. He previously reported for Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, and The National. He has a recent article at The Atlantic, a guide to the possible forthcoming indictments of Donald Trump. And his latest article at The Atlantic is Trump's last-ditch gamble to avoid indictment. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Graham. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And going back to your article about a month ago, a guide to the possible forthcoming indictments of Donald Trump, how does the news today, the partial release of the findings of the special grand jury in Fulton County investigating Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 elections in Georgia? 
Well, I would. I wish we could get more out of it than we do. It's sort of tantalizing, but doesn't give us a lot. The judge gave released sort of the beginning and the end, and then this intriguing bit about how uh, this, the grand jury believes that um, some of the witnesses may have lied. I think one of the interesting hints here is in his order releasing uh, this part of the report. The judge said one factor was that people who um, are, might be named in the report and haven't had a chance to testify themselves. Um, you know, shouldn't you know basically shouldn't be exposed to sort of uh, an accusation without a chance to clear their name, and so that's interesting. You know, we we don't believe that Trump uh, testified to this grand jury, as far as we know. It'd be hard for him to hide that. So, I think some people are looking at that as a hint that maybe he could be indicted. I don't know if we can draw that conclusion, but um, I think it's interesting to 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 read that and and to wonder if that's what it might mean. But did you uh, in going through? the legal jeopardy that Trump is in on various fronts, which we'll talk about. I mean, would you rate this one the most likely, uh, the Fulton County? I think it is probably the most likely one. I mean, it's between that and the Mar-a-Lago classified documents. Um, But in this case, you know, we we see this investigation. We know it's very large. Uh, We know that um, Fannie Willis is looking into Trump's behavior. And we have this call from Trump to Brad Raffensperger, which is a, a little bit of a, a smoking gun. I mean, in it, he says he wants to find these votes. It's recorded. It's Trump himself and and not, you know, passed through some sort of go-between. So um, I think it is, it is one of the two I would be most worried about if I were one of Trump's defense lawyers. Well, in your article, you quote Paul Rosenzweig, a former federal prosecutor, that Trump has learned that due process is the Achilles heel of liberal democracy. He's weaponized the court system all of his life. And that certainly is the case. And now, of course, he's even trying to jump in on the Mike Pence subpoena to testify before the special counsel, Jack Smith. And, of course, we can also talk about what Pence is now claiming or proffering. But he can't run out the clock on this one, right? I mean, I guess... They've they've done as much as delaying as they could. Rudy Giuliani and, and Senator Lindsey Graham fought their subpoenas, but they eventually had to testify. So has Trump been able to, to delay this one? I think he, uh, he, he hasn't managed to delay it to this point, but there are still things he can do. So even if he is charged, he can try, find, try to find ways to throw sand in the gears to draw it out, to sort of, you know, file procedural motions to get the case dismissed for this reason or that, um, and and to make it go as long as possible. And one challenge that I think Fonnie Willis has that a federal prosecutor doesn't have is simply resources. You know, she has an entire county court system uh, to deal with, um, and that limits, you know, how much she can put into one trial, even if it is a really important one like this. Um, And so, you know, one strategy they might have is to sort of just try to bleed the system um, until it becomes too difficult and too time-consuming and too expensive for for her to pursue. So I, I think even if he can't run out the clock on an indictment, assuming he is indicted, he could still um, he could still run things out a long way uh, on any trial. But you quote a law professor at George State University uh, in your article, David. The only thing worse than not prosecuting would be to bring charges and then to lose. You obviously you're doing this before a jury, and even though we heard Trump tell Brad Raffensperger to find eleven thousand seven hundred eighty votes, you know it's possible that you'll have a MAGA person on that jury. I mean, there are a lot of MAGA people out there in this country. 
That's right. I think that's the scary thing for any prosecutor in this case. It only takes one. Um, and uh, and even in this case where, you know, I think Trump's words are fairly clear. He is a, a master of speaking ambiguously um, and allowing multiple meanings so that he can sort of claim that he meant something other than what it seemed like. So what's the sense then of the other side of the coin in terms of Fannie Willis having problems or, you know, it's not, they're not going to be easy indicting a former president. But on the other hand, is it likely that she'll get back a backlash from the voters in Fulton County if she doesn't charge some of these people? Because the evidence has been out there, particularly the Raffensperger phone call. So people are saying, you know, <laughs> we'll be saying, why in God's name haven't you charged this guy? I think that's exactly right. You've spent a lot of time on this. You've put a lot of effort into it. We have the evidence that's public, which is fairly clear. Um, what you know? What is the reason you wouldn't do that? And I think that is a consideration for her. Um, you know, Fulton County is um, a, a, a politically mixed county, but it is um, tending more liberal. And I think voters there um, are upset about this, and and um, would probably be upset to see see such an investigation go nowhere. So I mentioned what's just happening now with Vice President Pence, who's now contesting the subpoena to testify before Jack Smith's the special prosecutor's grand jury. He's arguing, as far as I can tell, that it's a problem with separation of powers because he's saying that on January the 6th, I was the presiding officer of the president of the Senate, not the vice president of the United States. I mean, how's that going to fly? He got elected <laughs> as vice president of the United States. He didn't get elected as head of the Senate. I think it's a very strange argument, and it, it tries to split, you know, it, it's really sort of trying to slice things very thinly, um, claiming he's both in the executive and, and legislative branch. And I think, I mean, in a broader sense, this is a microcosm of how he has tried to handle January 6th issues, where he wants to separate himself from Trump and make himself appear like the hero of the day. But then when it comes down to a question of, for example, testifying against Trump, he won't do that, even though Trump as we saw, uh, supported a mob that was there and, and calling to hang Mike Pence. So, you know, he wants to have both sides of things, whether it's the legal question of separation of powers or the public impression on January 6th. Well, I, for the life of me, do not understand how anybody, if, if somebody summoned a mob to lynch me or you, David, wouldn't you be angry at this person and want justice and want them to be held to account? I would be furious, uh, and I, it's it's hard to understand. As I think, is anything other than a sort of cynical political move, where he um, he would like to be president, and he doesn't think he can alienate all of the Trump voters that much, and so he has to separate himself just enough, but not too much, um, in order to keep his political hopes alive. So, let's talk about the documents case. What, what's your sense on where that is in terms of? Uh, the priorities of what's the most likely in terms of indictments of Trump? You know, the nice thing about that one um, for prosecutors is it's just relatively simple. Um, there, He has the documents. He didn't turn them over. He was asked to do so multiple times. His lawyer certified he hadn't done them. It, You know, it's cut and dried. When you look at the January 6th cases and, and you look at questions like insurrection, there's a ambiguity about intent. Even if you look at the um, the Georgia case, there's some sort of ambiguity. But with the documents, it's fairly clear cut. And so I think um, it's a very easy case to charge. And it's the sort of thing that uh, the Department of Justice tends to take very seriously. But this is a man, Donald Trump, who's been one step ahead of the sheriff all of his business life and all of his political life. And 
there's numerous investigations and the, the, the Mueller report unfortunately got sort of sidetracked by William Barr to the point where I don't think too many people have read it, but it's, it's certainly indictable offences there. You know, we talked about him running out the clock. It'd be nice to get him on something substantial because, as I say, you could describe him as a career criminal or certainly a, a wannabe mafia boss. So he's going to end up, if the documents charge is the first indictment, will that be a little bit like busting uh, Al Capone for tax <laughs> evasion? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be ironic given the things that Trump has done, um, you know, whether that is, uh, you know, extorting Ukraine for his own political benefit or inciting an insurrection for it to be something as as sort of I mean, I don't want I don't want to downplay the importance of, of you know, hoarding classified documents and, and national secrets because that is a crime. But it does feel like um, a little bit uh, pedestrian compared to the sorts of offenses that we've seen him commit uh, pretty openly on the national stage. But doesn't that mean that, that if the Justice Department doesn't indict him for clearly obstruction of justice in terms of not wanting to hand over these documents, let alone the reckless endangerment of top secrets in a place where people can wander in and out of uh, Mar-a-Lago, God knows. I mean, from a counterintelligence point of view, I'm sure the intelligence community are figuring they're going to, this thing's going to cost the U.S. taxpayers billions and billions because you don't know what what secrets are lost. You know, if they've been exposed or likely to be exposed, then you'd always have to err on the side that they have been exposed, even if they haven't. So that's the situation there. So I don't see how the Department of Justice can in the future nail people for these transgressions or, or crimes like under the Espionage Act or whatever. I mean, think of reality winner rotting away in jail. If they don't do something about what Trump did, doesn't that make uh, future prosecutions more difficult? Um, I think it does, and I think that's one reason why this is such a threat to Trump. But, you know, as you say, he, he has always been one step ahead of the sheriff, and there are um, there's political considerations to indicting a former president. It, you know, it's, it's, a, it's something that's never been done like this. And, of course, he will muddy the waters and say, well, look, Joe Biden had these documents too, and I think it, it is important to say the Biden case is different in substantial ways. He's turned them over. Uh, he didn't refuse to, you know, he hasn't held on to them. He hasn't lied about it. Um, but um, but it's true that, you know, he will muddy these waters. And I think it, it makes it a more sensitive case for the Justice Department. So let's turn to the Manhattan District Attorney's case. I mean, I'm sure you saw the former prosecutor who was promoting a book who quit in protest because Alvin Bragg had dropped the case that he had been working on, and he he argued that he felt that Trump was indictable and that he had the goods and that somehow Alvin Bragg chickened out. I saw a lot of him on being interviewed, and I and frankly, uh, even though he's he's a RICO specialist and a highly regarded lawyer, I didn't find him that convincing. What what about you? What do you think in terms of? that element of the Manhattan District Attorney's cases. Well, you know, it's interesting to see how the district attorney has tried to handle it. And he has both, he's revived this investigation, but also has downplayed it in saying, you know, uh, that we didn't have the case then, we didn't have it. We just didn't have the, the material. So um, I'll be interested to see where they come out on that, whether there is in fact a strong case um, that the Manhattan DA can produce or, um, 
or if they end up, you know, sort of sidetracked. We, you know, we know they're looking into this hush money question. Um, uh, so, there, you know, there's a bunch of potential charges there. I think it's a little bit tough. Those cases are a little bit tough. There's political pressure there uh, to charge Trump. Um, but they're they're less cut and dried and, and less simple to charge than the other ones we've been talking about. But do you think uh, that the former prosecutor in, in writing this book and doing a lot of media, he has in, in any way endangered the possibility of an indictment coming from Alvin Bragg now that he's resumed the case? I, I'm um, cautiously skeptical that it will make it um, you know, this is not the sort of, you don't want as a prosecutor, you don't want to see your case sort of aired in public ahead of time. Uh, but Trump knows what the case is going to be about. Um, he's probably going to pursue the same tactics. And so if there's a, if there's a strong case to be made, I'm sure Bragg will bring it. Um, and I don't think this is going to, um, make the difference. But on the surface, if Michael Cohen has already gone to jail for the Stormy Daniels payoff, which was a violation of campaign finance laws, wasn't it? He did it at the behest of Donald Trump, and that's what the case is. That would seem like a slam dunk. It's a, it, it would, but there's all these complicated questions about this, the statute of limitations on such things. And so, you know, the, the DA has to argue basically that because Trump was living out of state, the case is still alive. There's timing questions like this. Um, and of course, you know, once again, Trump will... Uh, rely on sort of ambiguity and claim that he didn't know what was going on or that he had didn't instruct Cohen to do this, these sorts of excuses. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's necessarily black and white. Well, let's turn then to what you suggested is the biggest case against Trump, and that is as a result of the House January 6th hearings, uh, which were then turned over to the Justice Department. And I think most of our audience probably watched all or some of those hearings, and they were pretty compelling. It would be a massive disservice to history. I mean, I believe one of the people you interviewed, I think it was Rosenzweig, said that had Trump just gone away and gone quiet after and licked his wound after losing instead of saying he won and launching this massive campaign based on the lie, the stop the steal lie. Maybe, you know, he wouldn't have been prosecuted, but it feels like it's a duty on the part of law enforcement and the judiciary to stop this man because of what he did. He can't get away with it, and he's trying to rewrite history. And there's a, you know, his constituency out there, the MAGA world, they're all feeding into it, the Republican Party itself, even McCarthy and others are now talking about these martyrs, the insurrectionists. They were absolutely murderous thugs who desecrated the citadel of American democracy and defecated in the in the halls of Congress. This is all being rewritten as history. And so it seems to me that there's a massive duty to posterity and to truth here that has to be dealt with. Well, right. I mean, and that's something that McCarthy was clear about on January 6th and January 7th and, and immediately afterwards. Um, and, and since we see, you know, the rewriting of history influencing him, um, you know, I, I think I think those things are all true. I, and I think from a, you know, what the public was able to see, it's clear that Trump was responsible for this. I think the challenge is whether you can prove that in a trial. You know, there's the ambiguity. There's the question of the single, you know, single MAGA juror. Uh, that we discussed before. 
Um, and I, you know, I think there's a real, uh, there's a real, ha- there's a real danger to a prosecutor. You don't want to bring a case like this um, and miss. If you're going to charge a former president in something like this, um, you don't want him to come out stronger, uh, and you you want to make sure that you have the ca- you know the case nailed up. And um, those are going to be the things that Jack Smith has to consider when he decides whether or not to bring a case. Well, is there anything we've missed here? <laughs> Apart from the, 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 the Putin-Russia connections, which are murky, but from what I understand about the counterintelligence world, they say they the guy is a traitor, but uh, that's a long way from being proved, obviously. Anything we're missing just in closing? I, I think that's about it. Thank you. <laughs> Should be enough, right? <laughs> You'd think. So again, thank you, David. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with David Graham, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he covers political and global news. He previously reported for Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, and The National. And he has a recent article at The Atlantic, A Guide to the Possible Forthcoming Indictments of Donald Trump. And his latest article at The Atlantic is Trump's Last-Ditch Gamble to Avoid Indictment. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the hypocrisy emerging from the Ohio derailment and toxic spill in criticism leveled at Transportation Secretary Buttigieg by Republican Senators Rubio and Vance, to which Buttigieg countered that his agency's ability to regulate the rail system was constrained by pro-business laws passed in 2017 by the Trump administration. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nelson Lichtenstein, who's a distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author or editor of 16 books, including a biography on the labor leader, Walter Ruther, and State of the Union, A Century of American Labor, Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy, The Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World, of business and the right and labor in America, politics, ideology, and imagination. And he has a recent article at the Los Angeles Times, No Rail Strike for Now, But Workers Aren't Done Fighting. And his forthcoming book is A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nelson. Delighted to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Nelson. And, And I spoke to you at the time of the rail strike, which didn't happen. But it was all about the fact that the railway workers are overworked because they've cut the workforce to the bone. And the reason that they were about to go on strike was that they wanted at least to have some days of sick leave. And the freight rail companies like Norfolk Southern, the one that's involved in the derailment in Ohio, didn't uh, want to give them any uh, sick days because they need them to work every day because... There's so few workers. And this 150-car uh, rail train that derailed in Ohio, spilling toxic chemicals and forcing the evacuation of a small town of East Palestine, 
um, is an ongoing scandal, and it seems to be getting worse and worse as as we learn more about the environmental damage done. So here you have an example of uh, of what happens when you have a depleted workforce, a long rail car with only two people on this entire train, and it's just an accident waiting to happen. So what do you see connections between that rail strike and what happened uh, with this derailment of this uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, train? yeah, I mean, what what the, what the railroads have done for the last uh, 10 years or so is a kind of um, a hyper-efficient um, um, plan, which, which in effect just involves, um, uh, I think they had a special name for it, I think uh, efficient railroading or something of that sort. It involved really uh, cutting the workforce by about a third uh, and really and run and running the having the, the workers uh, sort of on call almost all the time. The issue of sick days was just the, just the kind of the tip of the iceberg. Uh, people were presumably sympathetic to people going having to go to the doctor, but it was more than that. It was it was any time off that the amount of time off that the workers had was 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 limited. Um, and uh, I mean they were getting you know good wages and overtime and things like that, but nevertheless they they really didn't have enough downtime. And so you have these extremely long trains, um, and with just a few workers, two I think two in this case. And you know it it just in in theory you can do it, you know, but it, but in practice you know things happen, uh, 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 unexpected things happen, and in this case uh, you you got this in, incredible. A derailment, uh, and you know, and which creating a kind of environmental disaster. Uh, you know, I mean, so so uh, uh, you know, you need a certain kind of regulation of the railroads, which we, which is of course as, as American as apple pie. We've been regulating the railroads since the 1880s. Uh, you know, that's this needs to be renewed, uh, and um, the, the 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 strike. And there are the potential the, the strike that didn't happen was one element of that, but but clearly it goes way beyond that. I mean, railroads like like the internet, like telephone services, are an essential, really utility, uh, which uh, you know uh, countries have to you know make sure they work. Well, you were referring to what's called precision scheduling railroading (PSR), yes, thank you. Thank a management you. philosophy that those that advocate and argue uses technology to improve efficiency. But yeah. on the other hand, the workers say it's just an excuse for cutting staff and lack safety practices and shoddy maintenance or lack of maintenance to pad uh, corporate profits. And Norfolk Southern is not the first and only rail company to implement uh, PSR. Yeah, there's been, by the way, there's been a, been a consolidation of the railroads over the last 10, year, 10 years, just to a, to, a, to a very small handful who really run the operation. Meanwhile, they've been making enormous money because of the imports from, from abroad and, and during the pandemic, lots and lots of uh, think people wanted things rather than services. So they've been doing very well. And then, you know, they, they, did, they, they cut the workforce uh, uh, by a third and didn't have to, you know, they, on their labor costs were reduced. Uh, so, you know, they've been doing extremely well. And it's, a, it's an industry that calls out for for greater degree of, of, of regulation supervision, especially given the fact that now with the infrastructure bills, uh, that, you know, there's going to be a lot of money put into uh, shoring up uh, railroad infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, in response to that, we, we you know, the, the, the government does have the authority. Now it's, it, it's, you know, it's, it's easier you, having the authority um, 
and the you know and it's one thing but uh, actually doing it and and in some cases it requires congressional action as well to enhance regulation and so there there are kind of some veto points here between uh the the impulse to 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 for a greater degree regulation and actually doing it. Uh, one of the re- funny things uh, going on here is that some of the Republicans uh, have jumped in. Uh, I think Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and a few, Hawley and a few others, quite normally quite on, quite right wing, and have sort of you know criticized uh, the Biden administration and Buttigieg, who's head of. Um, uh, Department of Transportation for not doing enough, and and you know kind of, and uh, I, I find this uh, this well interesting at the very least whether they will consistently uh, take this tack because it is you know something that the Republican Party uh, has not heretofore been been uh, you know on board with that is greater regulation of you know. Uh, an, an industry in America, uh, and 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 the, you know the, historically the, that's the Republicans have not been doing that. But you know, these this certain wing, a small group of Republicans who really on the right wing, but who who claim or they they want to have their perception be that they that they are the vanguard of a of a Republican party that seeks to be a quote working class party. Um, you know they have at least they have. Uh, you know, made these these statements partly demagogic to denounce Biden and and Buttigieg, but you know, I don't know that we'll see how far it goes. I have the feeling it right. won't go that far, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, the letter you're talking about was from Senator Marco Rubio and mm-hmm. uh, J D Vance of Ohio. They sent a letter yeah. to the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg yeah. on Wednesday, demanding more government oversight of the U.S. freight train system. And the letter questioned how the derailed train's three-member crew was supposed to take care and monitor 150 mm-hmm. rail cars, a number yeah. of whom had these toxic chemicals, vinyl chloride, which is at the source of this terrible environmental problem in this small town in Ohio after the derailment. And they also went on to accuse the Biden administration of prioritizing efficiency over resilience in its national mm-hmm. infrastructure and transportation systems. And also Representative Ilan Omar has, has weighed in with similar mm-hmm. complaints to uh, Buttigieg. And Buttigieg is saying, great, finally, <laughs> you guys are, are talking about something that I've been talking about and that I want to deal with, but I can't because I'm constrained by Congress. Mm-hmm. And specifically, well, yeah. specifically, the this is, I think, the important point here that, and Buttigieg pointed this out, that, that the Transportation Department doesn't have the ability to regulate the rail system and they're constrained by law due to the Trump administration's 2017 withdrawal of a rule that would have required yeah. the installation of electronic braking systems on trains carrying flammable and, and hazardous material. And electronic braking, as opposed to the air brake system, which are over 100 years mm-hmm. old, would mean that had that train had the electronic braking system as the, as the axle uh, came loose, they could have braked the train electronically. So you don't have that concertina effect where you start braking and then all the ones in the back sort of just pile into the ones in the front, you know, like dominoes, and then they... You know, somewhere along the 150 car chain, the cars break loose and are derailed. Mm-hmm. 
That's what. Yeah. Happened. Well. Right. Well. Right. And and the well, the right greater regulation right requires this, some congressional action. I mean, the po- politics of this, and really more than the politics, it's sort of a kind of almost. Uh, 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 an ethos that uh, if these Republicans uh, are serious about wanting the base of the Republican Party to be a, a working class party, I mean, then uh, then they're going to have to break with uh, decades and decades of, of Republican, uh, you know, tradition. What defines the Republican Party as the Republican Party? That is, that is, it's a pro-business party that that uh, is, has been. Um, uh, very light on on the regulation, uh, and I mean, I, I I I rather doubt that that will will happen in the long run. The by the way, the the the, the resiliency versus efficiency that I, that's interesting because it, 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 in in Texas we we've had these disasters on the electric grid, which has been shown not to be re- resilient during these coal snaps. Um, maybe it's quite efficient. It is efficient if it all goes well, because uh, then you know you don't you know you don't have redundant um, uh, systems there. And certainly, the Republican Party of Texas has uh, not been pushing for uh, any sort of um, a, a resiliency in in that in that situation. And that's where Ted Cruz is from. Uh, but um, you know this um, this this political moment uh, could. You know, could be interesting, um, and, and when you have these spectacular disasters, which are clearly affecting a small town in, a, in, in undoubtedly a sort of Trump country uh, there of Eastern Ohio, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens on that one. I, I, I'm a little skeptical as to how far this will go. Well, apparently, there's every year 4.5 million tons of toxic and hazardous chemicals are shipped by rail in this country. And as as even as the letter from Marco Rubio and J.D. Vance to Buttigieg says, you know, how could you have a 150-car train with only yeah. three members of the crew? And they've, mm-hmm. they've already gotten rid of the caboose uh, as well. <laughs> so this seem, feels like this is a an accident waiting to happen. Yeah, it was. It was. And and by the way, I mean, yes, this is this is that that's taking place. Um, we're also seeing, um, for example, in Silicon Valley, a kind of the the same kind of deregulatory ethos has, is creating all sorts of dysfunctionalities, and they just retire. They just a Tesla just had to 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 um, uh, withdraw. I think over three hundred thousand cars because their their uh, automatic driving uh, thing isn't working. So I mean, you know, the there's a kind of uh, uh, chaos that is generated when. Uh, when you have a deregulatory uh, capitalism and and a, and a very short time span in terms of investment, uh, and and you know, uh, kind of you want to you want to get your money in and out as soon as you can, and I think that the rail the railroads, which again were kind of an, uh, an ancient staid uh, uh, industry in America, over 170 years old, uh, nevertheless, you know, a kind of go go mentality in in its management ranks in the last decade or so uh, has, you know, generated these kind of, um, of um, uh, dangerous uh, situations. The, the infrastructure pr- program does need, I think, you can't just hand out the money. Uh, you do have to sort of plan uh, where it will go and where we best put. And that, of course, does, does involve a certain amount of cooperation and with with private enterprise and so uh, but, I mean Buttigieg isn't off the is, I don't want to let him off the hook he I mean, he he does need to they need to you know j- 
jump into this in a, in a very aggressive way, uh, uh, you know, you can't just sort of hand out the money. I think one, one, to the degree we have an industrial policy in America, and I think we do have a de facto industrial policy, that used to be a, a phrase that was a no-no phrase back in the Clinton and, and Obama administrations, but we have it. What that, what that means, it means an element of planning, and, and planning means a certain amount of coercion when it comes to business enterprise. You can't just invest in when, you know, helter-skelter wherever you might get the most, the quickest return on investment. And I think we're seeing in the railroad Roads would be, you know, so we we're really we need to return to the the progressive era of over a hundred years ago when the railroads were in fact heavily uh, regulated, both in terms of safety and in terms of rates. Well, in terms of responsibility that uh, Norfolk Southern is taking for this environmental disaster in the small town of East Palestine, they've offered up a million dollars. And then uh, there was a town hall meeting Wednesday in this town, and Norfolk Southern refused to show up, uh, and they cited dangers to their physical dangers. People are uh, obviously angry, but, you know, at the town hall meeting, only the local officials, they couldn't answer the questions, and the crowd were yelling, where is uh, Norfolk Southern? Where is Norfolk Southern? So, you know... Yeah, I mean, this is... Yeah, this has the potential for being a... A well, not just a public relations disaster of, of enormous uh, size, uh, but 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 really that gets translated into a tremendous impulse toward well again toward this regulation. I mean, this million dollars is a laughably small amount. I mean, if people really are. Um, uh, injured by the chlorine gas. I mean, you're talking about a million dollars for each individual who, at the very least, who who has you know suffered some some medical malady. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a that's a, a ridiculous. We're talking, we, you know, we, we'd be in the, we're talking about you know, somewhere in the billions. I mean, it's like like these these disasters in in the Gulf of Mexico and the oil spill, or you know, or in Alaska. These, these are you're you're in the billions when you have these kind of disasters and. Uh, uh, what you need is, I mean, you do need a, a effective prosecution of these firms because the, the only way that corporate managers will be will, will seek to be responsible is when, in fact, the consequences of irresponsibility are, you know, shown to be monetarily, you know, enormous. And uh, so, I think we're on the first stages of this of a, of a long-term, uh, 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 you know, conflict here uh, uh, between the company and the. And the and the and the government and the individuals who've been harmed, and the railway workers united union, they're saying that this derailment in Ohio is a result of rail industry cuts to inspection yeah. staff, limitation of right. safety protocols, and that the East Palestine train <coughs> was hurried by this uh, PSR mm. regime that they have, mm-hmm. and uh, that it appears the train was not properly inspected since yeah. an axle broke. And again, as Pete Buttigieg is pointing out in in response to criticism from Senators Marco Rubio and J.D. Vance, you know, it was the Trump administration in 2017 that withdrew a rule that would have required the installation of electronic Mm -hmm. braking systems on trains moving hazardous chemicals and flammable materials. Yeah, let me just let me raise, mention one thing. This this points up the, the need for strong and aggressive trade unions um, because 
uh, even if that rule had been passed by Congress or something, the Republicans are, are, are right in this. An army of bureaucratic inspectors, you know, is is not enough to to ensure the safety, uh, you know, or the uh, just or simply obeying the law uh, by you know millions of, of business enterprises and especially big ones. What you need if you, when you have a strong union. Uh, they're on the job. They know what's going on, and and when they be, and and when they can, you know, make their voice heard and make it clear. And in fact, what you should, what in some places you do have it, you know, the right to refuse to 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 work when you find uh, um, uh, safety different problems. Uh, you know, this is this is what you need. And I think the one of the tragedies of of stopping the rail strike in the late. 2022 was that a moment where the 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 union would have been in fact strengthened enormously by this strike and the and the public perception of that would i think also have been been quite good and that that was forestalled by ending the strike i think it was very short-sighted on the part of the uh, biden administration um in, in many ways well, Nelson, I'm afraid we've run out of time. But before we end, I just wanted to mention that there are more than 20,000 rail workers during the year 2018 to 2019 were laid off. It was the biggest layoff since the Great Recession. And the nation's rail force has gone now to 200,000, its lowest level ever, down from 1 million at its peak. So you can see how the labor force has been eviscerated. I thank you for joining us, uh, Nelson Lichtenstein. Great to have been here. And again, I've been speaking with Nelson Lichtenstein, who's a distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author or editor of 16 books, including a biography of the labor leader, Walter Ruther, and State of the Union, A Century of American Labor, Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy, The Retail Revolution, How Walmart Created a Brave New World of Business, and The Right and Labor in America, Politics, Ideology, and Imagination. And he had a recent article at the Los Angeles Times, no rail strikes for now, but workers aren't done fighting. And his forthcoming book is A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet 
amor. 